Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Steve Edwards. Hello, from a very clear and cold Portland area. AJ O'Neill. Yo, yo, yo. Coming at you live from... The purple room. It's pumpkin time. So you need to change your color there from the purple. Maybe you need to get some orange color in Yeah, but then I'd, I'd have to either get Wi-Fi lights or I'd have to go toggle it. And then I'd have to remember what the values are. I've left it this way for like a year. I haven't even turned them off. Oh, nice. But like They're like five have... watt lights. So We also have Dan Shapir. Hi, coming for, uh, to you from my son's room. The Tel Aviv at war, Israel at war. Hopefully, no sirens while we're recording. Right. On the other, on the plus side, at least we have great weather. I mean, I'm wearing a t-shirt and the window's open. Oh, sure, rub it in. No, I'm Charles sure. Maxwood from Top End Devs. Um, I'm going to be releasing uh, an updated look and feel and functionality and new content to Top End Devs this week. So keep an eye out for that. Um, and yeah. So let's dive in and talk about this. Now, Dan, you um, recommended, I can't think of the right word, but it means recommended. So you you uh, proposed this idea uh, for us to talk about. So I remember the word. Uh, do you want to <laughs> give us a quick uh, intro as to what you're thinking? And then we can kind of jump off from there. Yeah, sure. So I'd actually like to start with uh, a tweet that uh, happened a few days ago on on you know, relative to when we're recording on October 26th. It was a tweet by Adam Rackis from uh, his, uh, from a presentation at uh, NodeConf. So, you know, NodeConf happened also a few days ago. And one of the code snippets that they showed on screen demonstrated inline server actions. So, you know, obviously describing code in a podcast is a challenge, but I'll try. Basically, they had um, a form with a button and the form action for this form that was activated by clicking the button uh, called a function that had used server in it. And that function contained an explicit SQL statement. So they used a, a template literal, which means you've got the backticks and also the word SQL in front, which marks it as an X SQL expression embedded in a string. Which, and, which is just a function, by the way. A lot of people know this. You just yeah, define exactly. a function with a particular signature that is basically like string and then list of dollar sign things. Yes. And then you can use it with backticks. Exactly. Well, I guess you could use any function with backticks. Most of them would just throw an exception because it'd be the wrong arguments. Yeah, that that's more or less true. It's it's a syntax thing. Uh, but basically, uh, what they showed really was that even though that function was written in line in code that, well, obviously runs on the client side in the browser because it's you know a form submission attached to a button, the actual code of the function runs on the server side where it executes that SQL. So it kind of interleaved client-side code with server-side code. 
And of course, everybody went batshit about it because, you know, <laughs> uh, PHP and, you know, separation of concerns and, and stuff like that. So, so yeah, so there was a lot of uh, Twitter chatter or X chatter around this whole thing. And uh, Adam Rakis joked that they basically killed notifications for him because he was mentioned so many times that he just couldn't handle it. Okay. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, but what was interesting for me in this whole thing, and, and I'll put aside this whole question of whether it makes sense to interleave client-side and server-side code in the same file in this way, and that's kind of its own discussion that you know we can have as well. But I wanted to discuss a different aspect of this, and that's the fact that server-side code is invoked by the by client-side code as a function, which means you're calling a function across the wire. It looks like a regular function call, well, in this case, actually a regular event handler, but it's still, it's a function on the server being invoked from the client using function call semantics. And turns out that there's a name for this, uh, for this thing. And the Functional programming? No, <laughs> and the term is RPC, which stands for remote procedure calls. It's, it's this approach of invoking remote code across the network as if it was a function or a procedure that you're calling locally. Uh, are you familiar with this concept? Have you encountered it yourselves? Well, I remember the UVU library used to operate on RPC and store state and cookies. And so you couldn't hyperlink to anything. If you gave someone a link, it would go to an invalid page. And the Utah Business Entity Search does something really similar. So if you go to Utah Business Entity Search and you search for a company and you find the registration, you cannot link to it to send it to someone else. So that's yeah. my experience with RPC is stateful, uh, server server handles state and you can't functionally use the web application but i know that's not the way that it is with these apis necessarily it doesn't have to be that yeah way it doesn't APIs. have to be it can be uh by the way you know we hopefully get to it there are upsides and downsides to using this approach and indeed one of the potential downsides is that if you're not careful you're creating endpoints that are difficult to use Okay, so the interesting thing about RPC is that it's not a new approach. In fact, it's an old one. So therefore, it's really funny to me that we're that it's suddenly making such a huge comeback in the context of 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 the web and specifically in the context of of JavaScript frameworks in in this last year. So, like I mentioned, we're now seeing it uh, like front and center. In, in Next.js, it was one of the big things that they were showing at, at, uh, at NextConf. It's called server actions, sometimes server functions, but I think they mostly refer to it as server actions. Uh, it's also available in Quick uh, with uh, server dollar. And Quick either actually took their inspiration from Solid or maybe it's the other way around, but they also have server dollar. So in both Quick and Solid, you can actually wrap 
what looks like a, a local function inside server dollar, call it using function call semantics, but it runs on the server side. Its code is never downloaded to the client and it's totally run on the server side. The parameters to that function are sent over the wire. The return, uh, the result is sent back over the wire. So from the client's perspective, it looks like a regular function call, but again, it's it's actually executing remotely. So it it looks like PHP, but it's transpiled into an RPC where the what looks like a function is being turned into arguments, like basically being turned into JSON. So when you click the button, the server the the, the function is transpiled to the server, and the arguments that are sent into the function are being sent via JSON over the wire. JSON or, you know... It, well, it could be custom, could be... It like, could be anything like else, but probably it's JSON. Yeah, the, 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 the code splitting is actually done by the bundler, not at runtime. So at real right. time, it, it actually, even though it's like coming from one file potentially, like uh, that example from, uh, from uh, Next.js, uh, it's actually, the bundler actually splits it into two separate bundles one bundle that can't be delivered to the client and another bundle that only runs on the server. Uh, and, and, and like you said, the function call actually translates into this process of serializing the arguments into some network protocol, probably JSON, sending them over the wire, deserializing them on the server side, handing them over to the function. The function executes the code and then you serialize the return value and send it back down. By the way, the old term, and I'll touch on why there is an old term, used to be marshalling. That instead mm-hmm. of serializing, we would say that the 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 you know in this particular instance of serialization and deserialization was called marshalling. Go still calls it that in their modern APIs. Mm. I thought it was just like a language thing, like some people prefer the term marshalling and some prefer the term serialization. But is it a nuanced thing like function versus method? I think it's a nuanced thing about marshalling being a, a special case of serialization because, you know, serialization might be that you're serializing stuff in, in order to store it in on, on, on disk or in a database. Mm-hmm. Uh, and marshalling... That, that's is how specific- I heard yeah. the, the term and marshalling. Yeah, marshalling is specifically in the context of RPC and, and, and function calls over the wire. Okay. So it's a special case of serialization and deserialization. Well, as, as you could suspect, this worries me strongly. This feels like <laughs> we're, you know, we're again plunging into the toilet. And I'll, I'll tell you why. Because I, I had my first experience, well, no, I've had two experiences with server-side rendering now. And both of them have been atrocious. Because it's developers who are newbie developers or that are just, they're not familiar with the HTTP HTTP stack. They might not be newbie, but there's plenty of expert React developers that don't know how an HTTP header works, right? There are Um, plenty of React uh, developers who don't know how the DOM works. (laughs) Yes. Yes, exactly. So there's like fundamental basic things like 101 type things that people who might have five years experience have never learned. So one experience was with a cryptocurrency project. They are doing server-side rendering. And as you may be aware, traditionally, there are two different APIs for crypto. There's web crypto for browsers, 
And then there's Node Crypto for Node. Now everything is switched over to Web Crypto for Browsers is implemented by Node and Bun and all the others, right? So now everywhere, you know, and Winter CG is taking that even further and is is adding like uh, cross compatible support for you know promise objects and different APIs and all that. So like things are actually kind of looking good in terms of things that should have been in the standard library in the first place, actually making it into the standard library as much as we can call it that. But because this thing was server-side rendered and it wants to know, oh, is this, you know, is, is this browser code or is this node code? And then, you know, you're trying to like tag a certain file. Is It just, it just made it really complicated. It made it nearly impossible to use a hashing function in web crypto and node because it kept on wanting to like retranspile it for web crypto for node for the browser. Right. So it's, and, and so, and it's like, it was, I think it was on Netlify, like their edge, whatever. So it's extremely new. And, and so it required, it required a specific version of node. Like you had to use 18, but you couldn't use 20 and you couldn't use 16 or something like that because of this module stuff. So there was that, there was that experience and we got it figured out. And the way that we solved the problem, I kid you not was we switched a switch case statement to an if statement. <laughs> and, and the reason was that when the transpiler ran, when it transpiled the switch statement, it would put it in a, like, it would, it would do a weird thing with function scope, probably for like the let versus var or whatever. And when it did that weird thing, it triggered some other, you know, scope context and, so it was just, it was weird. But the way we solved the problem to get web crypto to work in Node in a server-side rendered framework was to not use a switch statement, but use an if statement instead. I'm not making this up. The so, PR to fix it was to, to switch that. So that's one. Yeah, just a comment on that, though. I, I'm not surprised because this stuff is bleeding edge. First of all, I, I do want to mention that RPC in this context is not, you know, specifically connected to uh, SSR. You know, there is the thing about JavaScript that's running server-side and client-side and both sides and whatever, but it's not directly related to that. But it is definitely related to the fact that the bundler slash transpiler needs to do a lot of magic to get this thing to actually work. And... It's all brand new and bleeding edge, and I'm sure everybody's going to be running into a whole lot of issues like that, at least in the short term. So, but it, it, so here's the long term thing I'm worried about, which is my next experience with this stuff. And again, it's not specifically RPC, but it doesn't matter because it's the same thing, right? Like whether you transpile it or you know whether it's run directly on the server and then rendered. It's that the whole point is that you're mixing server and client logic in a way that they can't be untangled anymore. So somebody had created an Olama client, a web UI, that's actually pretty good. And it, Olama is local chat GBT. Uh, I'm actually going to throw that in the pics. But they created a client for it, and it had a dependency on Node for no reason other than that it was calling, it was making, it was doing fetch in Node that could have been done in the browser so that the fetch was being handled server side. And so then I, 
I ask, okay, well, how do you build this statically? Because I just want to put it in a web server, right? Like there's no reason that I should have the dependency of Node and, you know, all this other stuff. Because the, the way that people were interacting with this thing is, you know, like issues are about how do I do this in Docker Compose? It's like, oh my goodness. Like all we need to do is take the static files and put them in a public directory. You do not need, doc this is not a Docker Compose problem. Having Having a website make an API request to an API is not a Docker Compose problem. But in this case, it became a Docker Compose problem because it was using SSR and, and the RPC thing is, is the exact same problem because it, it bundles a need for a server to do something that could have been done on the client through a normal API and not require that the UI layer, because now the front end, we're creating front ends that require a backend, not that use a backend, because it's still going to have to use a backend, but now it requires a backend just to load the front end. I and agree. That... I agree, but you do need to think about it also as simply another different way of invoking backend services. Now, if you don't need the backend service at all, then you know just do everything client side. There is nothing preventing you from doing that. Um, it, of course not. But it, now that it's now that it's cool, but you're people creating, are going to do it regardless. Yeah, but I'm actually thinking. Forget the coolness. It does create a tight coupling that's kind of avoided by other approaches like RESTful APIs. But before we get to that, I want to touch a little bit. I wanted to, you know, one of the things that, you know, one of the benefits of of being more, let's say, experienced, or put another way, old in the industry is that you see Seasoned. all these trends, you know, come and go and then come mm -hmm. and go again. And I'm old enough to remember the last time that RPC was really popular. And it kind of caused me to start thinking about why it went away and why it's now coming back. What's, what's driving this resurgence or comeback of RPC? So first I want to touch briefly on, you know, the previous iteration of RPC which uh, happened, you see, RPC was really popular back in the 90s and not in the context of web at all. It kind of predated the web in a lot of ways. Um, it was for basically, you know, you would, you would write client server type, you know, thick applications, a Windows client talking to some Windows server or something mm -hmm. like that. And they would talk to each other they would need to talk to each other. So, you know, there were various ways in which they could communicate. And one of the more popular ways was uh, RPC. So first of all, first there was this uh, um, uh, kind of open source standard thing called CORBA, which stands... Now I feel old. I never wrote CORBA code, but I've heard... Yeah, Common Object Request Broker Architecture. You know, wow. Uh, you got to love you love it when there's the word architecture in the actual name. Um, it was this kind of a standard thing. It was fairly complicated, complex, and heavy. Started way back in '91, um, and it was really object oriented because object oriented was becoming a really big thing back then. And one of the key things about it was that it it supported RPC, and it was kind of language agnostic. So you could use it like from any programming language. So it kind of had to define uh, um, 
procedure or function interfaces using this kind of an interface definition language, which was language agnostic. Uh, so it, not only could you call it across the, the, the wire or the network, you could call, let's say, a C++ function from Java code or a Ruby function from Python code and, and so mm -hmm. on and so forth. Um, then Microsoft obviously invented their own flavor of RPC because why go with everybody else's solution? Uh, and there was, theirs was known as DCOM or distributed COM. COM was the way that there was an, a protocol that or, or interface that Microsoft created for separately compiled components to talk to each other. Uh, it, it was, again, kind of object-oriented and stuff. And DCOM extended that to be able to communicate over the wire. And then, basically, and, and these approaches were really popular, and they were really popular for a reason. Because as a developer, it's really attractive to be able to invoke remote services like function calls. That you don't need to think about, you know, network stuff. You just call a function, you know, you're blocked until it finishes because that's how functions work. And then when it's done, you get back the return value. And if there's a failure, you know, it throws an exception, something like that. Um, so it's really attractive in this regard. Um, and it gained a lot of popularity. And then it basically died. And the reason it died was because of the web. Because when the web came along, you know, all this stuff just didn't work with web browsers. There were two main issues. First of all, all this stuff just didn't work with web browsers. You couldn't do uh, an RPC call from within a web browser. And the other issue was that the, when the web happened, the sysadmins basically closed off all the ports except mm -hmm. for the web ports. So basically, you had port 80, and what's the SSL port? I always forget. 443. 443. And basically, those, and you know, to begin with, it was even just port 80 before we got SSL. Right. Uh, so basically, all the ports were closed, and these RPC implementations were all built on using, you know, doing um, UDP stuff over custom ports and, and stuff like that. So they just, you know, didn't work anymore. Right. They were all blocked. Uh, and good luck getting your IT guy to open the port, you know, all the ports for you because uh, your uh, uh, RPC implementation does an automatic port selection that you have no control over. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, you know, yeah. all of us switched over from using this stuff to using other types of, of protocols like uh, RESTful APIs, uh, sending JSON over HTTP, doing the serialization manually, uh, or maybe sending form data, stuff like that. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm trying to, was it, I, I think it was this, you know, Dan Box, uh, uh, Don Box was a really popular speaker back then and he used and he joked that uh we picked all these protocols because uh the sysadmins configured it so that only porn could actually go through the firewall so we had to masquerade our apis as porn uh yeah 
So that killed RPC for a really long time. Uh, and nobody was, you know, I, I didn't, I haven't thought about it in years. And then all of a sudden I'm seeing it everywhere. And I'm, you know, thinking of, you know, what changed now, obvious. So first of all, it turns out that there was some RPC stuff being done, but it was mostly done server side. Uh, turns out that for example, Google introduced this thing called uh, GRPC. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an open source project which actually uses HTTP2 as its transport protocol, but in a way that's actually not compatible with web browsers. So they actually, if you wanted to do... That's important. <laughs> yeah. So it turns out that if you actually wanted to do a gRPC from the browser, you actually had to um, have, use some sort of a gateway server. So you you downloaded the special client that communicated with the gateway server over like regular, uh, um, you know, HTTP2 that browsers support, and that would actually translate it back and forth for you. Obviously, that meant that uh, gRPC was much more of a back-end type technology than than one that would be used with the front-end. Then along came uh, tRPC which uh, a lot of people are confused with gRPC because the name was kind of similar, but it really has nothing to do with it. Um, And and tRPC was a library that kind of reintroduced the concept of RPC into the browser. It uh, allowed you to write, to like import this library and then make calls across the wire in a way, again, that looked like function calls. Now, why did this happen? And I'm, and I think that two things kind of enabled it. And it's, by the way, I have to say that this is totally my own personal take. I've, you know, others might disagree, you know, and if you have, like, if our listeners have a different point of view, I'd be really happy to hear about it. So feel free to reach out to me on on X or whatever. Um, But I think that two things drove it. And these two things are async await and TypeScript. Yeah, I have to say, like, I I was mostly working in IT back when a lot of the stuff that you were talking about, Dan, were things. And so I just see the errors in different apps, right? In different logs that I was on machines I was working on and, you know, would kind of elevate those to um, the different people who were supporting those applications. And so they were writing things that used uh, gRPC or RPC uh, calls way back in the day. I hadn't ever heard of tRPC until probably a month or so ago. And then I just haven't had time to really dive in. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm that's where I'm curious is like, okay, you know, who's using this and, you know, why are they picking this up now? Because, yeah, I kind of agree with AJ at this point, and it might just be out of, you know, not having looked at TRPC to really understand what the upside is. But, you know, REST works pretty good on most of the apps I use. So, so again, it's this whole idea of, of making, uh, of invoking remote code Effectively, in this case, it's server code from the client side in a way that looks like a function call. And that's why I'm saying that the, the, the 
the, 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 the catalyst that kind of brought this along or the two mm-hmm. catalysts are TypeScript and a Syncoate. And I'll start with why I think, which one, do, you know what, I'll leave it up to you. Which one would you like me to, to explain first why I think it's a catalyst, TypeScript or a Syncoate? It's Syncoate because TypeScript seems obvious. Okay. It's types. Yeah, you know what? So we'll we'll do the opposite of what you said because you know it's obvious to you, but it might not be obvious to others. Um, <laughs> Rebel. So so oh yeah, like you said, types, because you know JavaScript being untyped means that you know you're you're passing parameters in to a function or getting a return value. It might literally be anything. And you get into all this duct typing thing, and and you know, or having all sorts of ifs, uh, checking types of things, and it's really in that regard no better than using JSON. You might as well pass in an object containing everything, and just you know, go through the properties and figure and figure out what you got. Uh, so, in the pre-statically typed days. Sending a JSON, doing a remote invocation as a function call has no real advantage over uh, just sending JSON because either way, you don't really know know, what the types of the arguments that you're passing are. So they're just a collection of things. And likewise with the return value. Once TypeScript happens, and you know you've got this smart transpilation and bundler stuff that we were talking about before. Then with RPC, when you're you're invoking that code um, as if it was a function, it also means that the TypeScript type checker can verify that you're passing in, you're passing the correct types of things over the wire from the client to the server from the browser to the back end and you're getting back as a return value what you expected to get back so for example i could implement an add function on the server side and make sure that i'm passing in two numbers and getting back a number and and the type checker validates this and this was not relevant prior to typescript so there was much less motivation of using this ty- this kind of an approach or this type of protocols. So uh, typing, static typing that's been brought in to front-end development thanks to TypeScript is a huge catalyst from my perspective into why RPC has become attractive again. Or like, are you on the? Do you agree with me? Do you think it makes sense? It's obvious that you would want to do it in TypeScript. It's not, to me, it feels like now that we can, we must, rather than, like, yes, it makes sense that there's a resurgence. I'm not bought into the idea that this is better than the alternative, just that, well, now it's possible, so now someone will do it. Because, again, if if you're doing RESTful APIs and you're passing JSON, once that data becomes a json you're kind of you kind of lost the type information mm-hmm. it's up to you at yeah. runtime to validate the stuff when you're doing it 
everything in the context, let's say, of the same Next.js project or even Next.js file, then TypeScript does this validation for you at build time. I understand what you're saying. I don't, like, Go validates it at build time. Yeah, but Go is statically typed. Well, right, but that's, it's tooling, right? So that you... At the end of the day, it's, it's just tooling. tooling. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's but I do tooling. things for tooling too, right? Um, Even in yeah. Ruby or JavaScript that aren't, right? Because it, it makes my life easier. Yeah. So now I'll, I'll touch on the second point of a sync await. And for that, I'll start it the way that Chuck's likes these sort of things with a story. Uh, <laughs> so a long time ago, uh, I was working with this guy who was a hardcore backend developer working Java, C++, stuff like that. And then he decided to do a front-end project. And one day he comes, and so he starts coding JavaScript in the browser. You know, that was pre-TypeScript days. Uh, and one day he comes to me and he asks, um, how do I block on a network call? And I'm going like, say what? And he says, I have code, JavaScript code on the client that calls a backend service. I, you know, I have nothing to do until I get the results back. How do I write the code that blocks on it until the, the result comes back? And I said, you don't, because he was used to the multi-threaded backend world, where you invoked an API, the thread was blocked, and when the result got back, the thread was unblocked, and you and things continued to work because you had other threads. And obviously, um, you know that's not the way that browsers work. Now you might be a stickler and say, yeah, you can make a blocking uh, Ajax call, but you know, you really don't or you really shouldn't. It's, it, it's a hack and it's deprecated. These days, we also kind of have workers where you can do these, you know, blocking calls. But, but really, if you're working, like you usually do, certainly back then, you don't want to block on a network call. So instead, you know, you do what we do. Uh, you have you know, it used to be you had a call. Back then, the answer was you used the callback. You made the call. You had the callback in a closure. Uh, you gave back control to the, you know, to the event loop. And when the value got back, you, uh, you know, the callback happened and it had access to the context because of the closure. And that's the thing that I kind of had to explain to that developer. And, you know, he had to wrap his mind around it. I think that he wrapped around his mind around it to such an extent that after that project was done, he immediately went back to doing back-end development and never did front-end again. Uh, but uh, so, and that was one of the problems with RPC because with RPC, you invoke code across the wire like a function call. It means that it kind of needs to be blocking. Uh, and you're not supposed to continue until that function finishes, because when you call a local function, you know, you only get back control when that function is done. Uh, so being, so blocking is kind of inherent 
to this whole RPC model. And, you know, you really couldn't do it or couldn't do it well uh, in, in, in the browser. And then we got a sync await. And with a sync await, you can make it look close enough to blocking. So you that that remote function, it returns it the local proxy for that remote function, the thing that serializes uh, all the the parameters and actually makes a network request, that returns a promise. And that promise resolves with that remote function's return value. So you can await on that promise, and then your code looks as if it's making this kind of a synchronous function call. So it's so going back to what you said, AJ, before, it's just tooling, it's just syntax. But it's syntax, but this the whole idea of RPC is this whole syntax slash tooling thing that remote stuff looks and feels like local stuff. And and a sync await kind of enabled it. So from my perspective, those were the key quote unquote breakthroughs that kind of made um RPC um, attractive again. Um, there's actually a third thing, but before I touch on that, um, you know, do you have anything to say about this? And you know, how are we for time? <laughs> That's really right. interesting. Like I, I, yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. Now, now I understand why. And that's why we get a tweet that looks like PHP, but trans like effectively it's PHP. Effectively, it's run this function. <laughs> hey, server, run this function. But it's actually transpiled and doing RPC. So it's it's interesting. It's like even I can can appreciate the coolness of it. Like, oh, that's a tricksy thing to do. I just don't think it should be done. <laughs> um, it should be obvious, not not hidden behind well, layers of. Look, it's it's the th it seems that server actions or server functions are going to be the preferred way for Next.js in Next.js for client side code to invoke backend services. So get used to it. You're going to be seeing a lot of it. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> because you don't use Next.js, but but front-end developers are going to be using it a whole lot. That's what that's what I'm saying. And, and like I said, it's not even only Next.js. It's it's also Redwood JS in mm -hmm. the React world. Eventually, probably Remix. Even though they're making sounds about not really liking this pattern, I'm guessing that if, unless Remix decides to ditch React at some point, uh, they eventually might not really have a choice. Also, like I said, it's built into solid. It's built into quick. So it's, you know, it's, it's going to be popular all over. Um, and this that's kind is, of... It's, it's good to spread our bugs across a place where traditionally back-end people handled them and where front-end people handle them. We want bugs. We want as many weak <laughs> links in the chain as we can, as many multiple points of failure as we can, because it really sucks when apps work. Nobody well, gets paid overtime when apps are working. Well, that's the thing. If you're looking at these, and that's the, the third point that I kind of wanted to mention about this whole thing, is that it's all tied to this um, thing, this whole meta framework thing. 
that uh, the framework makers have decided to make all of us full stack. Um, so when you write in Next.js, I think that uh, it's, it's Theo that said it, that Next.js is, is a back-end uh, uh, framework, not a front-end framework. Even though it's you built on React, so you, you're kind of conditioned to think about it as a front-end thing, it's actually uh, a back-end thing. And we've got cats and dogs here. Obviously, hopefully, you're not hearing them. Uh, <laughs> we hear them. It's fine. It's it's fine. Okay. You know, my cat, my dog doesn't like the cats that are outside. Um, anyway, so the frameworks are now the, are becoming meta frameworks and are striving to handle both the front end and the back end as a single unified application. And that means that, you know, the two sides need to communicate with each other and ha- and they're bringing in this whole RPC way- mechanism as, 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 a, as, a, as a really nice way from their perspective to tie the back end from the, to the front end. And, you know, when people talk, start, you know, bugging them about separation of concerns, I think, you know, it was... Um, like uh, the React, um, uh, the React uh, CTO, uh, I forget uh, his name, who responded to to this, uh, to to these complaints about this whole lack of separation of concerns. And he basically, his perspective is, you know, these are functions that are running in the context of the same component. So I'm simply breaking a component's functionality. On, on that some of the functionality runs on the server side and some of the functionality runs on the client side. So there shouldn't be a separation of concern because it's the same component. It just parts of it live in different places. Again, so in other words, degree, he wasn't concerned about it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I missed my drum rim shot. I need my rim shot now. Yeah. Figure out how to add it here. We'll figure um, it out. Yeah. Um, so... Anyway, again, so you're really seeing this thing take take shape or or you know come to the forefront as in, in the context of all these meta frameworks transforming all of us from being you know either front end engineers or back end engineers to being all of us full stack engineers at least for the you know smaller projects because again some of the components functionality runs on the client side some of the server side. You know, if you think about React server components, these are components that run on the server side but are displayed on the client side. So, again, this whole blurring, uh, intentional blurring of the distinction between, you know, writing code for the front end and writing code for the back end. So, you were talking about how you're including, you know, server calls with the, I think the example is the dollar something. Sorry, I don't forget. I don't remember the exact syntax. And you're including it. Does it? I mean, do you have have to include it uh, within your front end calls? In other words, can you make a call out to another function that in turn calls your RPC? I mean, the thing that comes to mind is, you know, P, uh, AJ's favorite language, PHP, and and you know, when it first came out, you with the beauty of it is, or the danger of it, depending on how you look at it, is in a PHP file you could combine your HTML and your PHP code. Right, you could loop through stuff in PHP and then spit out your HTML, and that became 
a you know a concern because you weren't separating concerns, and so you've got templating languages where you you know you pass in your values and just your HTML and so on. So I'm wondering. I guess one thing I don't understand, Dan, is if you're doing your RPC calls, do you have to do them from within your front end, or can you you know wrap them in a separate function that you call from somewhere else? I'm not well, being familiar with React, I can't really you know. I'm not well, really familiar with it. Do you understand what I'm asking? Kind of. I think it's more a question of you're asking not from the front end, but from within the component. Uh, because the, yeah. whole, the whole idea of RPC is to call it across the wire. So it's either you're, either you're calling it from uh, the uh, uh, front end to the back end, or from one back end to, from one back end service to a different back end service. Now, between back end services, you know, we talked about the fact that you don't need this whole thing. You can use stuff like gRPC because you're not limited by what browsers allow you to do. So, you know, you can do all sorts of funky stuff because it's mm-hmm. server side code. Um, so you really, so this whole uh, RPC quote-unquote revolution is in the context of being able to call from front-end to the back-end. Um, now, the front-end, it, you know, usually in the context of a React, it usually originates in a component, but I assume that you can call, uh, the component can call another local function or maybe right. it has to be a hook or something. But at the end of the, the day, it's, it's a function and that function can call the backend function as, an, as using that RPC mechanism. Now, um, the thing that was kind of, uh, that got everybody's attention in that example from, from NodeConf is that the code was interleaved inside the single file. Previ- uh, that's uh, uh, that's kind of a code smell, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but again, it all has to do with the fact that from their perspective, they, all this functionality, whether it's running in the client or whether it's running on the server, belongs quote unquote to the same component. So why shouldn't it be in the same file? Now, actually, React previously required it to be separate. So quick and solid allowed it to be in the same file. You just wrapped whatever you wanted to run remotely inside the server dollar, uh, but you can have it. You could have it all in the same file. Whereas uh, React actually previously required to to put those server functions in a separate file with the kind of uh, you know like you this uh, uh, use server at the top uh, as a way to indicate that. Now they allow allow it to be inline, so they're kind of uh, um, you know achieved parity with what uh, Quick and Solid could do before. But that's you know that's your decision whether you want it in the same file or a separate file. It it either way it's still RPC. Okay, I guess I just tend to be pretty uh, from a code standpoint. I tend to be pretty. You know, and I try to keep things separate. You know, I was guilty in in when uh, uh, PHP. I used to you know combine the HTML and the PHP on one file, and when I was first learning it, and then I got you know more knowledgeable, more experienced, however you want to say. So I was just trying to wrap how you how this is combining things like that and not 
being a bad thing, but I'll I'll say this. So I like you. I like to keep my files small and concerns separate. Um, and I was speaking to Ryan Corniato, the creator of Solid, who, we, who we've had as a guest multiple times. Mm-hmm. And I asked him, like, because he introduced this whole server dollar thing. And I asked him, like, what's the benefit of being able to put both the back end stuff and the front end stuff in the same file? And it turns out that a lot of people, and Ryan apparently included, like to do simple things as one huge file. So they they write this project mm. that's like one big file, and then they break start breaking it up if and when it gets out of hand. But but a lot of their simpler projects they just do as a one file. So I I get that I like that right. Like typically my thought is a JavaScript library should be one file. It should not be one file per function. It should just be one file. If your library doesn't fit in a file, it's not a library. It's a framework or it's an application or it's something else. Um, but th- there's this, the social contagion is what I'm most worried about is people doing dumb things, thinking that it's cool and doing worse than if they had done the really stupid, simple thing, the kiss thing. Right. So on the one hand, all these frameworks are going to tout their benchmarks. On the other hand, these people who are creating the frameworks are going to say, oh, look how simple this is. You just throw it all in one file. And those two things are diametrically opposed, right? Like the place where you care about benchmarks and how this one's faster and has better scores on Lighthouse is diametrically opposed to this is so small and unimportant that we can fit it in a single file. Yeah, but not exactly because the whole thing is that the bundler kind of it's like a compiler and linker. It's it's you kind of uh, um, the the fact that it the source code is written in one file doesn't mean that it's ultimately shipped as one file. The bundler, at the very least, breaks it into some code. No, that no. Runs what, what I mean, what I'm I'm not talking about. I I sorry. Finish. I get what you're saying, but finish. Yeah, I'm saying that the bundler breaks it at least into two parts: the code that runs on the server and the code that runs on the client, and probably build breaks the client side part into even smaller parts in order to be able to ship only the stuff that's actually needed uh, on demand and, and so on and so forth. So you write everything as this one huge thing, but the bundler is really smart about breaking it up for you, you know, well, assuming, so that, it, assuming like that, it does the right thing. That makes it worse to me because now it's over-engineered for something that fits in a file, right? But but my my concern is not, oh, the performance is going to be worse. My concern is that developers are going to be writing worse code. Like if something scales to the point that you need every extra millisecond of performance, well, one, why are you using Node? But if it scales to the point where you need every millisecond of performance and you're writing everything in a single file, like you see what I'm saying? Like it's, if you start out on, because there's this balance, right? On, on the one hand, there's the the singleton factory, factory, class factory of the Java enterprise hello world. And then, <laughs> uh, right, but, but at the same time, we really don't want people to start out with a boilerplate of a single file that's mixed API calls and RPC calls and server calls and client rendering and CSS. Like one, 
who is the person that can actually understand all of that? Because you have to pick some technologies that you actually know well, and the other ones you're going to suck at. You can't know all those things well. So I have to respond to that. So I, I was cut. I, I did like a shit post or shit tweet in response to that thing where basically said that, you know, what's the difference between a front-end developer and a back-end developer? A back-end developer is forced to learn SQL and a front-end developer is for, forced to learn CSS. Uh, and like you I, said... I think it would be the front-end developers forced to learn JavaScript because their primary right. job is to do the CSS. Yeah, but now everybody does JavaScript or TypeScript, both the front-end and the back-end. Everything yeah. is, is TypeScript. Um, so the difference really is whether or not you do TypeScript with CSS or you do TypeScript with a, a SQL and, and the full stack is the, you know, got the toughest job. He has to learn both. Um, but before we run out of time, I, I really quickly, probably we don't have time to cover it in depth, but I really quickly want to touch on a few drawbacks of this approach. I mean, we mentioned some, but I want to mention a few that seem to be kind of intrinsic to this approach. So one drawback is, I think, is a potential proliferation of, of endpoints. I mean, because it's so easy to create them. You know, you want to expose some data from the server to the client. You just create another RPC endpoint, another function. Any component might have them. Um, so it's, you know, and, and which kind of brings me to like the big change that we will probably be seeing that currently the number of APIs, the API endpoints usually tend to be fairly limited and well-known and documented, hopefully, um, and structured. And, you know, this whole RESTful API thing is all about how we structure our endpoints. And, and you know, and now, you know, it's just going to be, hey, I need some data. Okay, I'll create another function it does whatever directly to the database, gets whatever data I need, and just exposes it, you know, directly to the front end. Um, you can auto-generate documentation for that, and, and yeah, but but it'll these probably be better are, than GraphQL documentation. Yeah, but these functions are really <laughs> are really ephemeral. They'll be coming and going. Uh, well, you, you auto-generate them. You know, npm run build. Yeah, but that's the other thing. It will create this sort of a distinction for good and bad between internal APIs and external APIs. Um, I think it, who was it? Like uh, Jeff Bezos, who wrote that famous uh, um, uh, email to all the uh, Amazon employees that all the components must, must communicate yes. through well-documented public APIs, something like that. Uh -huh. um, Remember that. And here you're going to have like lots and lots of APIs that are wholly internal to your next application or your solid application or your quick application. And they're probably going to be completely distinct from the public APIs. So who's going to make sure that the public APIs still work because nobody internally actually uses them? Uh, well, maybe, maybe, maybe what this is building a use case for, and I, I think this might be where it's headed, is a meta WordPress. This isn't like building an application. This is like having a meta WordPress where you've got slushy APIs that you can add or remove anything to a will, having these, these components that just automate the plug and install process. And maybe that's what it kind of turns into is it's like a, 
a slushy WordPress type of thing, but where you have full control over the UI layer rather than being constrained in the the plugin architecture of the WordPress. Possibly, possibly what I'm really concerned about is a world where, um, you know, uh, the, the this this is really expedient and it makes upfront development really fast, but then you're left with a tangled web or, you know, ball of string that's going to be really difficult to unravel and a lot of uh, uh, tight coupling between front end and back end that you're going to have a really terrible problem fixing if and when you need to make certain changes, which brings me to another problem, which is versioning and public APIs. You know, theoretically, you could make those endpoints public. I think that uh, uh, all of these API, all of these well, uh, vendors... You make the component public, not the no, API. No, you can actually theoretically make, like they, like if you publicize how you serialize the stuff over the wire, then you can make the endpoint public. You know? But that seems that seems counter to what the framework is doing, right? That's going around the framework, not using the framework. I if you're using the framework, you would publish the components. And again, I'm very apprehensive about that, but it's cool. Like it's a neat tricksy thing yeah, to but, do but, if you were just publish again, the components and the components are the API. Yeah, but again, if I'm creating an API and I do want and I do have both in both and I do want to have public APIs for the, my application and I don't want to maintain a proliferation of APIs and I want to make sure that they always always probably all properly work I may want to but I also want to leverage all the benefits of invoking them as RPCs it kind of needs to be able to work both ways and I understand that in in theory it can time will tell how it actually works in practice I'm concerned about that and the final thing that I'm really concerned about that I wanted to mention really briefly is versioning. Because if it looks like a function, function calls aren't versioned. Uh, mm-hmm. the way, I, I remember from the, the DCOM days or the COM days, you would have do something, do something two, do something three, do something four. <laughs> and I've seen that in Rust code. And, and yeah, and... So they are doing certain things for versioning inside the context of the application itself, maybe even reload the application. If, because think about it. Let's say I opened um, uh, a Next, uh, an application written in Next, and it has like these RPC calls to the back end. And you know, I'm, it's open on my, on my computer for a while. I went out to lunch. And while I was eating lunch, a new version was deployed. On the back end. And then I come back and I'm trying to use the front end, which is an SPA. So, you know, it's still running. Uh, and it's making function calls to endpoints that no longer exist or maybe have a different signature. You know, how is that handled? Uh, it's a good question. Now, when we use JSON over the wire, we think about this sort of thing and we strive to make it backward compatible to some extent you know, or we keep old endpoints. Here it's, you know, by it's kind of by definition, the old endpoint will be gone and either replaced in place or some other place. You know, I don't know what will happen. 
it's so maybe you notice that and, and when you get an exception you reload the page but then you know i don't know I'm, I'm also worried about what happens when someone accidentally deletes you server and then expose their private keys to the internet because that's uh, that's going to be happening yeah the, obvi- first of all obviously that's going to be happening uh they do have to be fair they do have certain safeguards against it so like if you put um uh code in separate files you can actually have an special like import that if you accidentally try to import into a client side file it will break or so like you have things that can help you guarantee that this file can only run on the server and won't ever be downloaded to the client because the build will break if you try to actually download it but i'm sure that we're going to be seeing situations where you know just the fact that the same developer is writing server side code and client side code and it's not trivially clear where the code is actually executing is a recipe for this stuff to happen for sure i i really wish our focus was more on how do we enable developers to fall into the pit of success instead of just of despair yeah but I, but I mean, we're just we're just people get bored and they spin the wheel again. It's like, oh, I haven't seen RPC in a long time. Ooh, what cool thing could we do now? But that's like, I, I want to see people mm-hmm. falling into the pit of success. I want to see people who are undereducated, who are going through boot camps, who are you know working in their first job and have too much stress and load on them. I want to see them p- falling into the the pit of success and the pit of long longevity sustainable project and i i I think it's obvious this is not that i'm not sure because to be fair there are benefits to this approach especially if you're building if you're building small to medium projects if you're building one-offs i can see a lot of benefits in that um the fact that you've got type safety hello world to do app if you, you the fact that you've got type safety in over the network is really powerful. Uh, you know, we we've seen we've all encountered situations in which somebody got an improperly structured response, didn't fail on it, and instead misinterpreted it. We've we've all seen that sort of thing in 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 web applications. Well, you can't, but you you can't rely. The tooling is for you as the developer. It doesn't provide you with security. I mean, if you if somebody just wants to curl and throw in a number where there's supposed oh, to be a string, hopefully you don't five hundred and no restart ob- your application. Ob- obviously, obviously, I would validate things before writing stuff to the database. But uh, and I and I strive not, although again, if you know, not to crash the server if somebody sends me in improperly you know improper values as parameters and i assume the actual library layer provided by let's say uh, vercel in xjs safeguards against these sort of you know at least the trivial things um but again the fact that i'm i'm sending let's say a number and a string and it's enforced by the type checker to be a number and a string on both sides at build time not at runtime, at build time is pretty powerful. And the RPC model, like I said, is very attractive. Oh, one more 
problem, potential problem with this type of thing that we saw a lot in the DCOM days, and I think that will more or less be where we finish, is really chatty protocols. Because uh, you, it, it, it all looks like function calls, so you make a lot of function calls. And each function call is a round trip over the wire. So you wait on this, and then you wait on that, and then you wait on another thing. Well, that, that's been hailed as a virtue with GraphQL, right? That's like the whole selling point. <laughs> now, but seriously, that, that is the selling point. is like only get what you need when you need it. So even though you know you're going to need all these... Yeah, but I'm talking about right something now, that's even... But I'm talking about something that's even worse. Um, okay. Something where, let's say, I need to... I know that I need to get these two values, but because of encapsulation, I write them as two separate getter functions and I invoke both getter functions over the wire. So I ended, and they're both, they're not like promise all. Each one is its own async await. So I'm doing the first one to get the first value and then the second one to get the second value instead of having a single API call that gets both values. And and, 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 and GraphQL was better, better in that respect because you could, well, in 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 theory, you could have. I, I think values. in practice, it ended up being about the same. Yeah, but but what I'm saying is because network calls masquerade as function calls, you start thinking of them as function calls. And in and the, in you, local dev, it feels like that because in local dev, you've got zero millisecond response time, exactly, and infinite bandwidth, exactly. And yeah, my conversations about... go fast when I'm talking to myself too. Yeah. So I'm really con and in DCOM, the, the, the old DCOM RPC days, we definitely saw a whole lot of that. Really, you know, APIs that were built to be super chatty, that required a lot of back and forth to really do anything because of encapsulation, because of separation of concerns, because you looked at everything as if it was a regular function call with the costs associated with a regular function call, which are effectively zero. Um, so, yeah. So, and that more or less, I think, concludes our time and my thoughts on this topic. Yeah, it does kind of get us toward the end of time. Um, yeah, I look forward to some talks or things coming out from you on this. Damn. Fingers crossed. I've submitted to a couple of conferences. Let's see who's willing to accept a speaker from Israel these days. Well... Um, I would if I were running a conference. Anyway, um, all right, let's go ahead and do some picks. Um, I'm just going to go from top to bottom. So, Steve, what are your picks? Uh, I came across an article, uh, where did I see it, two or three days ago, I think. And just to give a little background, um, <clears throat> one of my sore spots still is is how during COVID we isolated everybody behind Zoom, whether it was work, especially kids, and the destruction that was right on them still pisses me off. <laughs> but it was an interesting um, article. It was a study that recently came out, and I'm trying to find uh, the URL here because I wasn't uh, prepared for it. Here it is. And it was about the difference in the brain that happens. It's a comparison between what happens when you have a conversation over Zoom versus what you have. Uh, what happens in person when you're actually sitting there talking to a person face to face as compared to over Zoom? Over Zoom, and 
the gist, the, the tagline from the study was the research suggests online faces with present technology don't engage our social neural circuits as effectively. In other words, when, and this is common knowledge to anybody who's paid attention over the past few years, video conferencing, it's not the same as in-person contact. You know, it's whether it's face-to-face, whether it's physical touch, whether whatever it is about the way we're made, the in-person contact is so much more important you get so much more out of it than just, you know, a Zoom call. And there's, you know, the ongoing debates about working remotely versus working in the office. Um, And that'll go on for a long time. There's pros and cons to either, depending upon the situation. Uh, I was listening to another uh, podcast, I believe it was this week, uh, this morning, it was Syntax. And they were talking about how recently they had gotten together in person in the office. And they said, one of the hosts said, it was just crazy how much more they got done being in person and how much more energy there was, you know, how much was gained by being in person. And my company, we're all remote. And uh, for the past few years, we've tried to get get together in person at least twice a year. Um, and my boss and I have both noticed how much more we get done meeting in person than, than being remote. So um, the study like- was... It's uh, neuroscience news is the, is the uh, URL for the study. We'll, we can put it in the show notes, but it's really fascinating. And to me, it just confirms, you know, uh, other city uh, studies along the same lines that have come out over the past few years. So I'd like to make a comment about that. So in Israel, like everywhere else, obviously with uh, COVID, uh, remote work became a really big thing. Uh, oh, same here, and- for sure. Yeah, and, you know, because Israel is kind of small, so this, you know, there are traffic jams and whatnot, but still you can get from one place to in Israel to another, usually by an hour or two of driving. Uh, so in, in terms of distances, the whole concept of remote working is is less relevant when you're working for Israeli companies. I mean, if you're working for an overseas company, obviously that's a different story. Sure. Um, but with COVID, remote working became really a, a thing. And then when COVID kind of was over, effectively, uh, people, you know, a lot of companies were starting to, like, try to recall everybody to work back in the office days a week. Right. Uh, and that's where we were for a while. And now with this war happening, everybody's working remote again mm-hmm. because everybody wants to be with their family and nobody wants to get mm-hmm. caught on the road if there are, mm-hmm. like, rockets falling and, and stuff like that. So. Um, you know, you come to the office, the office is basically empty. Also, mm-hmm. schools were out for a while. There are now, you know, certain areas of the country, they still are. So um, we are completely back to remote working all over again. Uh, so, so yeah. <laughs> Turns well, out let me you, ask, need a, you need a I word mean, for that. <laughs> yeah, I think between you and Ukraine, those tend to be more the exception than the rule, <laughs> you know, to be honest. But let me ask you this, Dan, do you you know, having worked both in person and in office, and I worked in, in office for, you know, probably 15 years, 19 years before I ever went remote. Do you notice a real difference between what's gained working in person versus remote in terms of interactive with the team and productivity and so on? Oh, yeah, for sure. One of the things that I really like to do, which really is a big part of the type of work that I do, is, is kind of, a call it a walkabout, which is mm-hmm. I literally like to yeah. walk around the office barge into people's offices, assuming they're not in the zone or whatever, you know, you don't want to interrupt somebody who's, you know, typing away. But if I'm looking at somebody who doesn't seem to be really busy at that point in time, then I start asking them about what they're working about, uh, working on, 
how they're implementing it, you know, what they're, the issues that they have. It, I, I've even encountered situations where I found two people working on the same project without being aware of each other, <laughs> simply by talking to them and, and, you know, listening to what they're working on. Or, you know, be, especially because the type of work that I do is really cross-cutting, I, I, I can provide feedback to people who are working on a lot of different types of things, or it's interesting for me to learn what they're working on, you know, the problem, the challenges that they're encountering. And that's not really something you can do, in fact, at least not that I found when working remotely. On the other hand, there are advantages. The fact that uh, mm-hmm. you avoid the commute. I mm-hmm. mean, if the commute is two hours a day, is, you know, an hour each way, then you just, you know, save two hours a day. That's a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you can, I remember my first remote job, we used to talk about that, how, if anything, you could maybe split the difference and that gives you a little more time to work, you know, if you can increase yeah, exactly. productivity that way. You know, the things I miss is just being able to walk around the corner, say, hey, what's up, you know, help me with this problem. And then you get eyes on it or, you know, just sharing of ideas. And there's, like you said, I don't have to bring food in the office every day and get dressed up. You know, I'm notorious for my dressing up. I'm to, the, you know, I'm the kind of person that people ask me why I'm dressing up when I put on a shirt with buttons on it instead of a t-shirt or a sweatshirt. So, you know, for <laughs> That's me, why it, you're in tech. It saves in my right. It saves on my wardrobe. So, there's pros and cons to every situation. My point of the study, though, is just that I'm hoping people are realizing that there's a we're social people. You know, we have to, that in-person contact is really important, not only to work, just relationships and functionality as a whole. I've and, heard of companies where remote working was really a big part of the culture and they had various tricks to get around this sort of thing. So, for example, uh, a team of people working remotely would basically like launch Zoom at, or something like a group Zoom at the beginning of the day and just keep it open, even right. though they weren't really, you know, working together. But mm-hmm. it's still not the same thing. You're right. It's not. Yeah, my, sure. I want to chime in here just for a second because I, I feel a lot of this and I'm one of those people that um, when I was working for a company and they started talking about us coming back into the office, I started talking about my next job. Um, and I have to say that the the primary thing for me as far as working from home versus working in an office is, and, and even when I was on a team, um, in fact, it was funny because the one job I was in when they started talking about us coming back, we basically paired online the whole time anyway. And so we, we, you know, we were, it was a mix of chit chat and talking about what we were working on talking about work. But, um, for me, the, the difference is, is that if I'm here, I get way more done because I don't have people floating by my desk going, Hey, I got a quick question or, Hey, do you know how to do this thing that I could look up on the internet in two seconds? And and so, um, you know, even when remote work was kind of a new thing, I was always pushing to get at least a couple days out of the office for that. Yeah, there is a certain level of, hey, I'm trying to figure out this thing and you know about it. Or, hey, I know that you have a, the right kind of background to where if we sit down together, we can figure it out. That stuff does work much better in person. But, you know, Dan talks about his walkabout. Well, I've had coworkers that their whole day was walkabout and it was basically them going from one person <laughs> to the other person interrupting them. And right. so I think a lot of it is just really dependent on who you're working on and what the expectations are. And then I think different people thrive under different circumstances. You know, talk about the walkabout. There's a cartoon that I saw years ago and I can still remember it and I wish I could find it. And it, 
uh, I know Dilbert's always had, you know, cartoons about stuff like this, but it shows a guy. And as a developer, this is something we all know, right? Where you, when you're looking at code, you sort of have to almost the way I think of it is storing your stuff in memory. You put all your code stuff in memory so you can process it, right? Just like a computer does. And so, okay, this code's doing this, this code's doing this, this code's doing this. And you see this cartoon of him getting into it and understanding the environment he's in. And then all of a sudden somebody comes in and interrupts him for some stupid question. Like, did you get the email I sent you? You know, and you're totally out of that. Now you got to come get back in your headspace again. So, you know, that's something it's yeah easier to do from home. Although those of us with small kids yeah. can, can <laughs> talk about how that gets interrupted at times. But anyway, I didn't mean to go down a whole 20 minute thing. I just thought the study was interesting yeah. in light of, you know, the whole remote versus uh, in-person work discussion that is going on yeah i think i think it's worth having a wider conversation about it but yeah um it's definitely sure. interesting right and then uh, uh oh, wait a minute you, no, oh yeah dad yeah, jokes more dad jokes sorry i'll make them quick so <clears throat> without the rim shot it's not the same but i'll do my best so two slices of bread got married the ceremony was great going great <laughs> and then someone decided to toast the bride and the groom um uh, question. So, when butterflies are in love, do they feel humans in their stomach? Right. It's then, too bad I was muted the whole time I was laughing. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, finally, so this one might take a little explaining. Let me know. It, I had to read the comments below before I understood it. I heard a photographer was killed in a freak accident when a large wheel of cheddar landed on her. But to be fair, the people were being that were being photographed did try to warn her. I don't get it. Cheese, you know, they're saying cheese, oh, right? Oh, cheese for the picture, right? Right. right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Anyway, that's it for me. All right, AJ, what are your picks? All right. So first of all, I'm going to pick again the Zen of Python and the Go proverbs, but primarily the Zen of Python. Because, you know, if you, if you don't go to church, worship at this altar. Because it's a daggone good one. Beautiful is better than ugly. Explicit is better than implicit. Simple is better than complex. Complex is better than complicated. Flat is better than nested. Sparse is better than dense. Readability counts. Special cases aren't special enough to break the rules. Although practicality beats purity. Raise... Or, oops, no, that's errors should never pass silently unless explicitly silenced. In the face of ambiguity, refuse the temptation to guess. There should be one and preferably only one obvious way to do it, although that way may not be obvious at first unless you're the creator of the program. Now is better than never, although never is often better than right now. If the, if the implementation is hard to explain, it's a bad idea. If the implementation is easy to explain, it may be a good idea. Namespaces are one honking great idea. Let's do more of those. And I feel like it's hard to read that and pull much positive out of our discussion about the direction that the RPCs are going to push people in terms of more nesting, more complexity, ambiguity, but Zen of Python is, I, I, it is, it is my programmer's Bible, uh, paired with the Go Proverbs, 
but uh, the, the two are 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 kind of two sides of the same coin. They're they're very very similar, and and one is an homage to the other. When there's also there's plenty of homages to the Zen of Python. There's also Zen of Zig and a few others. Anyway, but uh, yeah, yeah, I think I think that that that's something that we all we, we'll just we'll be happier people. We'll just we'll just benefit so much from that that philosophy of simplicity, explicitness, principle of least surprise. Don't you know if it, Yagni? Like so much of that comes out of. Uh, the, or is expressed by the Zen of Python. Next thing I'm going to pick, oh, and the, the link I'm giving is a poster version that you can print out and hang hang at your desk. And I, I also gave a, a link to, a, I gave a presentation on this, I called the Zen of Programming because I applied the principles more broadly because it's, they're not, they're not specific to Python. It's just, this is one of the reasons that Python traditionally was easy to learn because it had an ethos to it about focusing on the things that are important to get the work done correctly not to get the work done in the coolest way possible. Um, the next thing I will pick is Olama. So uh, Olama is a server for large language models. At the base level, you can run two commands. So I'm going to link to webinstall.dev slash Olama. You can run, well, I guess total three commands, but it, and and within five minutes, this can be running. And the reason I say within five minutes is because if you you know have a hundred megabit connection, it'll take about four minutes to download a model. Uh, if you go with the the model that's the most like Chat GPT three three point five is Mistral. There's other models that uh, do better or worse than Chat GPT in certain metrics. There's kind of like a table saying this. This model's better at code. This model's better at in, uh, language translation. And the cool thing about this is I think this is what's going to win. I think that chat GPT is going to be proven to be unsustainable, to have a general purpose model that just does everything all the time for everyone. Uh, I think that the cost structure isn't going to work out ultimately. And and it's going gonna, it's gonna to be uh, subject to insuccification because that at some point the investors want their money back. So you can't just, pay literally it's over a hundred million dollars a day to run chat gpt is is what i've what i've heard and I, and that sounds true and that sounds that sounds right so the idea of breaking down and having smaller models that are more specific and more tuned to a particular thing and you you know you pick the model that's the right model mistral is the most general purpose model and it and it performs similarly to chat gpt and many of the different tests but yeah anyway you can you can run this uh on your local computer it runs it runs awesome on apple silicon if you have something that's older than apple silicon it might run okay but it runs awesome on apple silicon it's 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 nice and snappy and so you can you can just run three commands and then a couple more if you would like to actually have the web interface like chat gpt where it tracks the sessions and stuff I found that the models that I've tested in Olama are more sensitive to sessions, meaning you've noticed sometimes in ChatGPT, if you're talking about TV shows and you switch to talking about programming, sometimes it crosses the streams. Uh, the, the models that are available in Olama, namely there's SQL Coder, Llama 2, Mistral, 
and then there was another general purpose one. I don't remember. Anyway, um, it it crosses the streams more. And there's a few models that are specifically for Python. So if you're a Python coder, there's models that have been trained highly specifically on Python. There's there's another one that's been trained on like 80 languages. I haven't actually tested it out. Anyway, it's it's really, really fascinating. And I have found real uses for the LLMs because the statistics, you know, a lot of times it just spits out garbage, but for really simple boilerplate tasks, it does really well. And for really simple data extraction tasks, it does really well. So you can you can ask things like, give me this information about this document as JSON with key value pairs and stuff like that. And if you structure it well, you can do it. So uh, I think Alam is really interesting and I'm I'm excited to see where it goes. And I'm, I'm excited to see a approach that's more specialized because I think that the the generalization being you can access many models, but each model being specialized is is really really cool. Um, and then I'm going to also pick. You know, you've heard the quote because this was relevant to what we we're just talking about. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Uh, I think that that kind of describes that remote work tension is. When you need to work quickly on something and be efficient, silo yourself. When you need to integrate and really get the ball moving on having the pieces come together, then you need to get together. Uh, and then lastly is I'm going to pick Webby again it, itself. Uh, we finally crossed the 1,000 star marker. So we've gone down from being able to see every single time an individual stars it to now we won't know for a hundred stars at a time and i'm super excited about this and uh i was i'm i i looked at the stats to see kind of what people were were downloading the most and i was actually kind of surprised k9s is number one and then zig isn't too far behind but uh yeah if you haven't if you haven't uh, if you use webby and you get value out of it and you haven't given it a star yet consider it because as soon as we get to 1.1k, I break that like decimal place in the K barrier. I've um, I've got plans, big plan. Well, really, I'm 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 gonna actually start making some using that. Or what's the? There's compound. There's the compound interest that once you have comes once you have enough of the social engagement. And 1.1, I think, is where we start to hockey stick it and really do cool stuff. All right. Dan, what are your picks? I'm going to keep it short, but intense. So as you guys know, there's a war going on here in Israel. I'm sure everybody's heard of it. Uh, And there are some really bad, sad news coming out. And there are some really happy news coming out, more or less at the same time. So I'll start with the sad. Uh, The sad news is you might have heard of this young woman called uh, Shani Lok. Uh, she's uh, she uh, an Israeli, a young. She's 23 years old, uh, German Israeli, uh, who was visiting that Nova Music Festival, and she was uh, dancing there and partying. And she was uh, kidnapped by Hamas terrorists when they, um, uh, you know, raided that music festival. Um, they actually filmed themselves driving around uh, Gaza with her being thrown in the back of this kind of uh, pickup with looking like 
pretty mangled, like her legs in unnatural directions. It wasn't clear if she was uh, alive or dead, and people were coming up and spitting on her and hitting her. And they actually sent that video to her family. Um, so it was pretty messed up. Uh, well, uh, the sad news is that apparently afterwards they decapitated her and uh, her head was found. So we now we know that she's dead. Uh, and that's the really sad news. The happy news is that, uh, as you know, the Hamas grabbed a whole bunch of hostages. Uh, one of them, a uh, young woman, a 19-year-old called Ori Magidish. And, uh, she, and the news just came out that uh, she was rescued. So Israeli ground forces uh, were able to rescue, rescue her and pitch battle with the people who were holding her. And she is safe and back in Israel. And hopefully the same will be true for as many of the other hostages as possible. Uh, and so that's the sad news and that's the happy news. And those are my picks for today. All right. I, I... Anyway, um, I'm going to pick board games. Yeah, I'm sorry for that, Chuck. I no, know that it's... it's... It's kind it's of just, difficult I, to come up with picks after something like that. I know. I I can't I can't even fathom how people do that to other people. I, I guess that's the best I can put it, and it still feels inadequate. So, anyway, um, yeah. I mean, I'm praying for peace, but I'm praying that yeah that Israel is able to get as many of those people back as possible, and that you all can do whatever you have to do to make sure this doesn't happen again. Um, Thank anyway. Amen. Um, yeah. All right. Let me get a little uh, out of my head here for a minute. Um, so yeah, so I'm going to pick a board game. Um, now I've mentioned before, I'm, I'm, you know, teaching games at this uh, game con here in Utah. And uh, one of the games we're teaching is called first rat. And uh, I'll put a link to it on the, comments and stuff but first rat is um what what it is is your your rats and you're collecting items to build a rocket to the moon because of course the moon is made of cheese and so uh green cheese that's green cheese uh, i i don't i don't know if the game specifies that and it's yellow on the box but anyway yeah it's still cheese right um i played it with four people and three people and it was fun um and what you do is you um you basically move up the board and the, the rules are pretty straightforward. You're not rolling dice to move or anything like that. You legitimately choose how you're going to move your, your rats and you can get more rats. Um, you can get the ability to move your rats further. Um, you know, you get bonuses for getting to certain places on, on the, the table. Um, my one friend that I was playing it with, he's the guy that uh, invited me to go teach at the game con. He, he likes it because you can basically like there's there's almost no luck involved it's legitimately you choose how you move and then you reap the rewards of that um if you land on the spot with another person's rat then you have to give them a piece of cheese right but you get to pick that too right you you get to choose how you move and so you can choose not to land there and not to give them any cheese anyway um it was really fun 
of all of the games that we're learning, all six games, this was my favorite. And uh, it took us, I think it took us about 45 minutes or so with three people. Took us almost an hour with four people. So I think it just depends on how many people you have playing and how long people want to drag the game out. Um, Board Game Geek rates it, or has a weight of 2.27. So it's it's pretty uh, approachable for most people, right? It's it's not um, it's not the simplest game I've ever played, but it's not so complicated that you're going to spend hours figuring out how to play it out of the rulebook. So um, yeah, of all the six games, this is the one that I'm I'm liking the most, and I'm going to recommend, and it's it's awesome. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and put a link to Board Game Geek so you can look it up, and then I'll also put an Amazon affiliate link in for it. Um, but yeah, uh, I'm, I'm really, really liking that. Um, I've also been reading a book uh, lately, and I'm I'm really liking it too. It's called The Business Tune-Up. Uh, am I still on? I think I'm still on. My, I was reaching for the book, and I knocked something onto my keyboard. Uh, it's The Business, The Ultimate Business Tune-Up by Rich Allen, and uh, it's terrific. So if you're trying to run a business and you're trying to figure out some of the uh, things you can do to make things better, uh, highly, highly recommend it. It's great. Um, and then um, last week, I'm just going to pick this as well. Last week, I went to a speech by Glenn Beck, and he was talking about the American Covenant. And what's interesting, just to give a little bit of background, um, I felt pretty strongly that I needed to start another show and start talking about some of the things we can do uh, to make sense of what's going on out there in the world and, and how we can live live life in a way that empowers us to live how we believe. And I'm not going to tell you what you should believe, but I did want to get into, hey, here's here's how you become more aware of what's going on in your kid's school. Here's how you become um, more active in your local community. Here's how you pass your values on to your children. And the thing is, is that I kept pushing off what I needed to talk about and sometime in July, I got a really strong impression that I needed to tell, teach people about the American Covenant. And it's an idea that I'd heard floated out there before. But I, you know, when, when I get these impressions, most of the time, it's me going back to God and saying, I'm not sure what you mean. And this was one of those times I actually went and I prayed uh, just to figure it out. And I got another distinct impression um, that he was going to send some people to help me figure it out. And literally that next week, um, I got an email from the Utah Eagle Forum that they were having Tim Ballard come out to talk about this. And then uh, within a couple of weeks, I got another notification from them that they were having Glenn Beck come out and talk about this. And it really did open me up to some of these ideas. And so it's going to be a mix. I'm going to be talking about some of these ideas. I'm going to be talking about... um, to some people who have a better grasp of some of the concepts around here's how we, you know, prepare for anything that's coming. Here's how we, you know, um, fight it back against governmental tyranny. I'll make a difference. So um, anyway, uh, I'm going to start a new show. It's going to be called America's Destiny. And um, I'm also going to be getting into Utah politics with another show, but I don't know how many of you are going to be interested in that. It's going to be called Stand Up Utah, but I, I am going to be reaching into this area and and talking about not necessarily you know the fight over who's the speaker of the house and some of the 
timely news, but really about, hey, how do we deal with the things that are coming our way? And here, how do we live up to this promise that we have as a, as a nation with God? So anyway, um, I know that's a little bit off topic. That's why it's in the picks and I'm not, you know, pushing it at the start of the show, but uh, I'm going to pick that. And then the last thing I'm going to pick is uh, Tailwind and Tailwind UI. Really? So I went and I actually paid for a license to Tailwind UI. Um, yeah. It's 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 both more helpful than I thought it would be and less helpful than I thought it would be. Um, the more helpful part of it is so you effectively get, um, you know, chunks of layout that you can use. And I've, I've used that pretty heavily, um, reworking a lot of the stuff in top end devs. Um, but what I wanted was like a component library I could plug in and they do have react and view versions of some of that stuff, but it's not, it's not a hundred percent. And I'm writing it in rails and I'm using stimulus JS. And so I've had to kind of, fiddle with it to figure out how to do the javascript pieces myself with stimulus but it's been it's been really really cool and uh are you familiar with do you know headless ui i've heard of it okay that's tailwind that's tailwind components that's your component library the difference between what you have as i have a membership as well and headless ui is is um the Tailwind components is basically just layouts. Here's all different kinds of static layout components, you know, editing uh-huh. e-commerce to application to forms, whatever you can just right. drop it in. Headless UI is your stuff like your drop downs, your, you know, your select list, your uh-huh. uh, modals, your right. uh, all the different interactive type components that you can plug in and tweak that are, they're really pretty cool. And so, you know, like Tailwind's supposed to be there. They give you samples, but they can be really bare bones and you can change yeah. all your classes and stuff. So you use I use the headless UI more so than the tailwind UI. Right. Um, yeah, I'm looking I'm at it and it looks like it has React and View components. Yep, it does. And yeah. I just want straight up HTML and then Yeah. So I'm I'm mostly getting what I want from the Tailwind UI. But yeah, if I were going to be writing my application using React or View, then I'd I'd be pulling this in for sure. So anyway, um, so yeah, and I guess one more pick, um, and this is something that I picked up at uh, Rails World, is Kamal. And Kamal is a deployment strategy that uses Docker. And so effectively what you do is you um, you can just install it either as a Ruby gem or um, there's actually just a shortcut you can copy and paste into your Bash RC or ZS, ZSHRC or whatever file. And then you can just run the Kamal commands and it'll do the thing you need to deploy. But then it's just a YAML configuration. And then what you do is you go set up your servers on like DigitalOcean or Linode or Hetzner or, uh, you know, any number of the other systems out there. And it'll SSH onto the machine and install Docker. And then it'll build your Docker image, push it up to Docker Hub or whatever other registry you want to use. And then it'll pull it into onto that machine and do a rolling restart. It does the load balancer. You can set up accessories for like Redis or PostgreSQL. Um, and it's, it's really simple. And so um, if you liked kind of the simplicity of a Vercel or a Heroku, then Kamal is a really, really uh, friendly approach to doing that kind of deployment. If you want to deploy to a VPS or a set of VPSs, and not have to worry about the build step on the other end or anything like that. So um, anyway, 
I've gone on and on and on. I'll put all those uh, links into the comments. And uh, yeah, those are my picks. And I think I think that's everything. So I'm going to go ahead and get those links in real quick. And until next time, folks, Max out. <laughs>